At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Provoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Spencer Greening is an indigenous scholar from the Shimshan peoples of the Pacific Northwest Coast. His current doctoral research examines the relationship between traditional ecological knowledge, indigenous legal systems, and indigenous management of ecosystems in a current context. His work has led him to be honored with one of Canada's top academic awards as a Trudeau Scholar. I met with Spencer to discuss government relations and the complexities of indigenous peoples in Canada today. So I was actually born and raised in Burns Lake, British Columbia. Okay. So I grew up most of my life away from my community, but within another community, the Lake Babine First Nation. Now, how far of a drive is that out of Vancouver? Just- so Burns Lake is 10 hours north, and uh, my home community, who I've been tied to at the hip with and working in and, and living, uh, trying to live as much as I can in for the last however many years, is another eight hours to a ferry and then a three-and-a-half, four-hour boat ride to the community of Hartley Bay. When you say you're born in Burns Lake, but your home community is there, what it's is... Hard. What, so, yeah, walk me through the story of that. So my mom's family are Tsimsien from the northwest coast. Okay. So a lot of people are familiar with the Haida. The Tsimsien are... It's sort of like you could take the geographical presence of the Haida and throw it onto the mainland coast, and that's the Tsimshian people. And to their north and northeast are the Niska, and inland a bit are the Gixan, Wet'suwet'en. And and so they're the indigenous people on the northwest coast of BC. In and around Prince Rupert area, a little southwards, inland, and up to Alaska. Okay. So that's my mom's community. My family before I was born, moved to the town of the village because it's a small town of Burns Lake. Uh, my mom worked for the Lake Babine Nation. And so that's how I feel connected with the people I grew up with and who my mom have known forever in that community. But predominantly when I say my community is Hartley Bay, that's where my lineage comes from. My 
Tsimsian lineage, among other villages. I have ties to the other villages as well through my mother. But if you were to look at my Indian status card, which exists in Canada, uh, it would say Hartley Bay Band. Oh, that's interesting. So it doesn't matter where you're born. It matters where your roots are from, or is it where your maternal roots are from? Essentially, it, it gets, it's quite gray in that usually the parents who put you on the list when you were born and there's a, a, some paperwork with the government, they would choose. Got it. At the time of colonization, the government at large generally structured in, in a way that was patriarchal. So it would go through the father's oh, lineage. Oh, interesting. Cause when I was speaking with Roy, he was saying so much of it was done through the mother. So is it that, you know, historically, and, and I do apologize in advance if I'm not great with being politically correct. I, I don't know proper terminology. So just, you know, correct me as I am wrong throughout this interview. But Roy was saying that it was primarily done through the mother side. So in the First Nations world, was it always done through the mother side? But in the Western world, was it always done through the father? Generally, if you look at the history of accumulation of land or the inheritance of land, there's deep history in Europe of it being through patriarchy. And so that came over to North America and at the time of colonization when there were, was the, the complexity of the relationship between indigenous people and the colonizing countries in an attempt of assimilation at large patriarchy was kind of enforced in a lot of ways. Okay. That's about what I expected. Now, what about your father? So my father comes from German settler roots. And he actually grew up in Surrey on a mink farm. And oh, wow. on that side, they're mink farmers. And so he met my mother and Prince Rupert and they continued their life up north. Okay. So he was a white guy. Yeah. All right. And so I'm a half breed. Yeah. So well, <laughs> that's not a politically correct term, but that's what I, I in, in like up. growing up on the school on the res, yeah. I was like, just like, <laughs> did you run into any issues being, you know, fitting in? Totally. It, it was kind of confusing because like all my best friends were much darker than me and I considered myself growing up. I was like, I'm an Indian. And, um, I remember at one point I thought a lot of my friends were black oh. or, or <laughs> because I made the connection that like, well, if I'm quote unquote an Indian, because that's what we were sort of called at the time and I'm this skin color. I know that African American people are darker. So I thought all my friends were actually <laughs> that is really funny. Yeah, and that's what, in my head, but no, I I was just like the little blonde haired native kid Aww. when I was a young a young boy. Did your mother embrace her her roots? Yeah, so growing up, um I mean it's complex. My family come from their residential school survivors. And so embracing roots is like, it's a tough conversation. My mom talks about having to lie about being Polynesian uh, and uh, mistreated in school, even though uh, a huge percentage of Indigenous people live in Prince Rupert, where she would have went to school on the coast. Uh, it, it was still sort of the mentality of really outright racism. And when you think of 
the racism that existed in Canada. Residential schools didn't end until 1996. I think people need to know that for context. And so growing up, it, it was present. And I only knew my Tsimshian grandparents, which I think also made it more prevalent in my life. And it made that aspect of who I am much louder. But there was always a, a sense of knowing and spirituality and growing up on the reserve or near that we didn't live on the reserve because we weren't Lake Babine people. Um, but growing right, growing up right beside the reserve and going to the school on that reserve, we were involved in the potlatch system, the clan system, just because of association and, and being within that community. Now you obviously have major ties to this because your PhD, are, are you a PhD student at this point? Yeah. At SFU? Yeah. And just tell me about the program that you're in. And are you a scholarship winner? Did I read, read that somewhere? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so something that I'm, my passion is looking at our traditional governance systems, our traditional legal systems as Tsimshian people, or specifically my people, Hartley Bay. Our traditional name is the Gitgata people or the Gitgat First Nation. Uh, our, our ways of, uh, our, our legal ways and what that looks in wildlife management, resource management. So I'm in the Faculty of Environment and Interdisciplinary Studies. What I use to sort of, by training, I'm an anthropologist that's worked within my community for the last 10 years. But something that I've taken on with the PhD is trying to understand when we look at resource management and wildlife management in these different contexts, in the Western context and in the indigenous context, we need to understand it from a deep time, a place coming from deep time. And the only human societies that have that in North America are indigenous people. And so in my work, we incorporate archaeology and looking at numerous, the site that we focus on, which is one of our longest occupied village sites, uh, we look at the archaeology of a place and what are the resources that are being used and what are the oral histories that connect that? What are the teachings around how you harvest and the management of fish, game, plants, wild gardens, forestry, all those? And you can analyze that both from an a historical perspective and a scientific perspective by looking at sites that are 10,000 years old plus. So you put those together and create the story. And with that story, it's my passion to sort of challenge the laws that are in place to make them better. Is there something in particular right now that really gets you worked up that you're trying to challenge? Yeah. I, <laughs> you're the like, past, which one? <laughs> so the past 10 years... Uh, more than that, our neck of the woods has been the site for proposed development on the northwest coast. And the entire area is sort of referred to the Great Bear Rainforest. How big is the Great Bear Rainforest? Gosh, I I don't know the exact size, but it, it extends from just north of Vancouver, like Uwikino people, up to Bella Bella up to Clem 2, up to Hartley Bay, up to Prince Rupert, and north. It's it's a huge chunk of the northwest coast of British Columbia. Yeah. So when we're looking at how resources are being used in those areas, if we are being responsible humans, we need to look at these deep understandings that exist on how to manage resources and understand them and work with them and make decisions about them. And so... I feel like 
indigenous voices have a very important role in that piece, especially when we're seeing the threats to, uh, let's say, our salmon that we're seeing today. Yeah. Uh, the threats that we're seeing to old growth forests, the things we're seeing everywhere when it comes to our worries about wildlife. Is it okay if I sort of paint a picture? Yes, what, absolutely. So I think it's important for the listeners to understand the context of management please on the northwest coast. Roy, I really like the the picture Roy Henry Vickers painted in your previous podcast when he said when we were in Kitkatla, which by the way is a neighboring village to Hartley Bay, he said we weren't really afraid of the police because don't quote me exactly, but the sentiment was because they weren't really a presence and that position of authority wasn't totally there. It would have been there in other ways when it came to the residential school system and the colonization with the church coming and all of that. But in some aspects, that authority wasn't present. And so I think there's this really misguided assumption that because the the way that most mainstream society understands authority, the police, um, in this case, uh, the provincial management of resources, that's how mainstream society understands authority. If that's not there, people assume it was like mismanaged chaos. Oh, right. <laughs> which is not the case. Yeah. Just because that version of authority wasn't there doesn't mean there wasn't authority on management and governance. Within the community. Within the community, within the broader nation as well. Who would govern that? What exists is a very complex legal system. And that's the other point I think most listeners, I would hope, can sort of glean from this conversation is that you imagine parliament as we have it in Canada yeah, or the Senate. Those bodies of government existed already in indigenous governance structures. Can you help me, uh, you know, to understand the structure? So I think people, when they hear things like the potlatch system, they don't fully understand what it is or was not to their own fault because it's simply a lack of education in our country and, and same within other countries on how indigenous peoples govern themselves. That's not very present in our education systems. Right. So the potlatch wasn't just this thing where people got together with food and sort of divvied it out or did whatever. That's totally what I thought it was. <laughs> I admit. Because I mean, I learned about potlatch in, in elementary school, not even in high school, in elementary school. And, and that obviously for young minds, that's the image that was painted. Totally. What it actually represents is governing bodies. So in our neck of the woods, we have different clans. And I, when I say clans, it's like a lineage, a lineage that's tied to a very specific place and a very specific history of how they came to that place. Just like how Britain is a very specific entity and has all their histories of how they colonized, we have lineages that have their own specific histories of how they came to be stewards of territories. So in the potlatch system, these are represented by clans. And by clans, I don't want to paint the image of like hippy-dippy totems and like people see these pictures on totem poles and things. The clans with their the representations of the crests and the animals refer to those histories. And so if you can imagine the Northwest Coast sort of carved up like provinces, different clans have claim and stewardship to those areas. And this is long 
and thoroughly documented in numerous court cases now. Do you know back to what year approximately? We would say time immemorial that this has existed. Later, I hope we talk about sort of, I have this idea of when wildlife management started through an oral history of when humans showed up. I cannot wait. But I'll follow your lead here. You take me down the road. (laughs) I'm just here to listen. So you can imagine the Northwest Coast prior to British Columbia was carved up or British Columbia in general, as we know, it was carved up into different territories. And these all had, it was a legal system that bound them together and kept them accountable to each other, just like governments today keep they're, they try to keep people accountable from the people to the state to the resources. It was the exact same thing. It just looked different and there was different value systems in play. Were there, were there punishment systems in play? Absolutely. You think of a legal system and, and a policing system that existed as well. We, we sort of had our own lawyers. We had our own historians. We had our own politicians. It's just their different names. And I think this is something that people need to grasp when they understand that indigenous people are fighting for their right to govern. It's not like, we're fighting for our right to live in mismanaged chaos. That's that narrative that has played since colonization. You had reached out to me just on a side note. You'd reached out to me and said, listen, I'm kind of, you're so professional in your email, but you said, you know, in summary, I'm kind of sick of like listening to everybody else talk about our story. You know, we want to talk about our story. And with that said, I'm going to just no holds barred. This is going to get awkward probably and uncomfortable because I'm going to ask hard questions that are going to make some people cringe because they're not going to be politically correct. But I'm going to ask them anyway, starting with this one. Do you think that some people assume this, you know, mismanaged chaos because in, in the movies and from what we've seen in history books, there seemed to be so much like there was just, it looked barbaric. Do you think that that's what people see when they try to think of what a legal system or a governing system would have looked like back then? Totally. It's, there's a few things going on. There's how Western stories have portrayed indigenous people. There's how Western governments have treated and portrayed indigenous people. And there's how indigenous people exist today. And so all of those things put together make a very confusing image for people to sort of understand or entity that people can understand. You've nailed it with movies and stories and, and whatever. And you can still hear the same sorts of things in many conversations today on, on how barbaric indigenous people are, are lesser than. Was it like that? Was it like that in a governing system? Walk me through a situation 400 years ago in a governing system when a clan felt like another clan was mismanaging a unit. What would happen? It. So. And for the record, white guys were cutting each other's heads off too. So this isn't, it's not like that. You know what I mean? I just was just watching some of the queen movies on the airplane and I mean, it was atrocious. So it's definitely not finger pointing, but I'm just trying to imagine what it would have been like in a governing system back then. So I'll bring you back to that place where we can imagine different lineages have different territories. I belong to a specific lineage through my mother that's passed through her bloodline. And I'm hoping our listeners can just picture a piece of land in their mind. Perfect. Anyone in my lineage has rights to harvest that area. And there are select people sort of 
on a hierarchical tier of decision making. And it was off, it was both men and women. But when you talk about, you referenced earlier the elders, often there's the elders at the top who hold the most rights when it comes to stewardship, but it's very, it's community based decision making. Okay. How do they get there? Are they born into it yeah. or are they it's, appointed? It's through lineage okay. and it's a bit of both. Generally, the system, you're born into the lineage, but also people make a conscious effort of grooming people for their entire lifetime to be in this position, to be the, we would say the chief of a clan or the chief of a house or a a group. And we have our own words for it. But uh, so we have that territory and someone comes in and is harvesting without permission. Well, there would be different laws in place on how they could approach it. Much like today, we have laws of non-residents and residents. They have to pay an extra fee. That existed. This clan holds title or stewardship over this land. If this clan wants to come in and harvest, they sort out a taxing system. Oh. And it could be distribution of wealth. It could be these other things. And it, it differs case by case. If laws were broken... It would often, it would turn into a sort of political debate, which would, could take place in, through potlatching, because it's kind of like a parliamentary system. It's our, it's our institution to carry out laws. And so that's where the debate would happen. And you would, chiefs and elders and noble people in that governance system would come to a decision on what would need to happen. And it, if it got, extreme, then war did happen. Uh, Any human society has war, but there's also countless other directions this could go to uh, come to a decision. Now, how would they pay taxes? So would it be in like, you know, your clan, like speaking with Roy, you know, we're going to trade Uligan grease or, or, you know, oil for moose. Is that how trades happen? Or would it be like, you can marry my, my daughter or it, it could be case by case. Sometimes it would a half or a quarter of what you harvest would go to this clan. Sometimes if a population is especially needy, then they could wait years down the road and bring something of value to the table. Let's say they had access to amazing, whether it was elk or shellfish or oolican or seals or sea lions. Often people's territories had like a specialty or were known People could bring that and say, we're hurting this winter. In four winters, we're going to give you X amount of sea lions oh. or X amount of whatever, oolican grease, seaweed, that sort of thing. Yeah. Now, how did that system fare? I mean, did it did it work out well for everybody? So this is the part that I really wanted to get to <laughs> is that I really like this quote that Steve Rinella used. I... I'm not going to quote him. I'm going to try to rephrase his his sentiment. And that the wildlife systems we see here today don't exist here because of luck. They don't exist because we just stumbled upon them. It's because they're actively human managed. And we did this. And it's, I'm, this is now my voice. I think that's his sentiment. And I 100% agree. My voice is saying, yes, we need to step back and say, the wildlife populations and the health of 
our natural resources at the time of contact were so healthy because humans managed them as well. We can't just pretend that all of a sudden Western society showed up and, and we've been able to create beautiful, bountiful wildlife systems. Those knowledge systems to do that have existed for millennia. And in this case, in my neck of the woods, those knowledge systems were held by the Tsimsian people, the indigenous people of the area. So when you say, how did that fare? My answer is, it fared in the bounty that people, when they first came to the coast, when they could walk across rivers with salmon overflowing with them. They say you could walk across the rivers on the backs of salmon. And so I think that's a large piece of the picture that needs to be understood and needs to be an important part of this conversation is that when we're talking about the philosophy of wildlife management and how humans fared in these relationships, there are human societies in place that have been living and growing and learning with very specific ecologic ecosystems for so long that they've gotten that relationship to where it was just, it was, it could support their entire population and many times over. So in this conversation, and I want to step back to what I said on how bountiful the Northwest coast was. I also want to say we can't romanticize this and that there were times of drought and people learned from that. And if you live in a specific place for 10,000 plus years, I should stop using 10,000. The oldest date we have right now is 14,000 on the Northwest Coast, and we're going to find older dates. People have gone through drought and they've learned, and there's just such a deep time learning relationship that when contact happened, there was just amazing ecosystems. How would they have properly managed that back then? So there's different techniques, and each species has its own technique. Let's talk about fish first. Okay. So I'll bring it back to that picture I'm trying to paint in that these areas are, there's a strong investment in governance, like indigenous governance bodies to manage these areas to keep their population strong. Since we're talking on the Northwest coast, I want people to picture like the city of Prince Rupert. Archaeologists have said that Prince Rupert, that Prince Rupert Harbor has potentially held 10,000 plus people prior to contact. Okay. Currently, the yeah. population is just over 10,000. Oh, okay. I actually didn't even think there were that many people. So you can imagine what Prince Rupert would look like now if there was no management. It would be chaos and wildlife wouldn't be as we see it. And so to think that back then the same population, except back then every single family of that population of 10,000 people is harvesting and relying on that area. So management had to be done with the purpose of understanding where we're trying to make large populations of people thrive right. in this healthy environment. The Northwest Coast, it was so prominent to have these large populations because of the salmon. So salmon management can look like a lot of different things. When it comes to harvesting, often it would be a similar system as I explained with the hereditary or traditional governance model where these, the people in power, uh, making decisions on this. And it can look like anything from fish traps mm -hmm. 
stone walls to giant stakes, something that looks like pound nets. Yeah. To actively growing populations through what we would understand as sort of hatchery-like practices. With fish traps, for example, it's really easy to allow and enable a species to thrive through selective fishing. So for people that don't know fish traps on the northwest coast, often it's like a big pool of sometimes built up of rocks, sometimes with giant logs or stakes sticking upwards, and it would have nets inside. And as the tide came in, the tide would be higher than the highest point of these hemlock or, or cedar fences or these stone walls and the fish would come in, they would mingle and as the tide went out, they'd get trapped in a pool and they would survive until the next high tide. When it was low tide, people could come in and selectively fish. So they would choose which ones they wanted, which spawners they wanted to keep, would continue to go up the rivers. You had that happening on almost every single salmon bearing stream. And I will include a link to an article I wrote about this in the write-up so that people can go and read Great. Because I think that it's actually a practice that we need to bring back. Totally. And so when we think of like industrial-sized fishing, that was happening on the coast, but was happening in that way, where it was selective down to every single fish being chosen for a specific reason. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Was there waste? I I think that's a... I can't answer that. And it depends how we define waste. I mean, I still eat fish heads. I still eat the eyes. I still eat as much as I can. I'm sad to admit I don't eat the livers, even though I should because I've, our people did. Really? Yeah. I've never we should eaten eat the fish, fish guts. Um, what people part don't. Of the fish guts? I did, actually didn't know this. You can, uh, some of our elders' favorite thing, the, Sperm sack of a, a male pink salmon. Yeah. We call them gadoos in our language. You squeeze that into what we call tchatsomsk, which is the soup from those salmon. Yeah. You squeeze it and you make it creamy and you should, like, that's an example. But is, that's, is it because it actually tastes good or is yeah. it because it's got some sort of healing power? All of the above. Okay. But when I say waste, <laughs> I mean, um, you know, nowadays you'll see on the internet someone's really upset because they've stumbled across. They say the natives were netting and then there's like a pile of wasted fish. Back then, did that ever happen? Was there waste? So I'm going to refer to this, this book I really like. 
there's this book called Ecologies of the Heart by Eugene Anderson. And he's an ecologist. And he's looked at human societies. He's tried to look at, in this book, human societies around the world and their long-standing relationship with sustainable wildlife management. Ooh, this sounds interesting. And so one of his conclusions is that societies that have had long-standing spiritual and emotional beliefs, taboos, protocols around wildlife have been the most consistently sustainable human societies ever. Can you give me an example? Totally. And so I'll, I'll get to where I'm going. I'm sort of doing a big story, uh, like coming That's, back to your question. Yeah, yeah, I like it. When I think of waste, I think, of course, there was waste. Uh, we can't, like, if a little kid took a piece of fish to eat a piece of fish, we can't guarantee every little kid finished that piece of fish. But here's this sort of difference. You were brought up, which I was as well, to believe that, and I do still believe, there are spiritual and legal implications around waste, which make people hyper aware, which in this book is argued makes a more sustainable society in general. When people are hyper aware spiritually and emotionally of wildlife waste and sustainability in these relationships. And so, for example, in our neck of the woods, it's common, commonly known that people burn waste I'm doing the finger quote thing, mm -hmm. waste, or put it back to the river. And there's a whole bunch of oral histories that say why. Um, a whole bunch of historical events on why we do that. But that act, knowing that if I just consider this waste and just let it go and don't think twice, on the regular, if you're hyper aware of these taboos and legalities, generally the momentum of that relationship with wildlife management, it sort of just bubbles in your actions. And so what you get is not a handful of people being super sustainable or a handful of people being like the most, the least <laughs> wasteful people you'll ever see. What you see is thousands of people or what we need in today's society is millions of people all trying to achieve that. And that's what you would see in these ancient societies is, is that the large majority of that population has this consciousness around what it means to waste and there's taboos against it. And so with that thought, if we look at, let's say 400 years ago and someone like me or uh, let's say some teenagers were out fishing, they brought some fish back to the community and they said, oh, but we left a bunch. That entire society would punish them. And that's just a, a societal value that we don't see today. We see it among certain populations today, but the entire global society as we know it, we're extremely wasteful. We wouldn't think twice about the things we see that are ridiculous when it comes to waste or pollution or whatever we're doing to the environment. And that's the difference. And so I'll just go back to the point I'm trying to make in that, of course, waste happened. But when it came to the repercussions 
of living a wasteful life, there were much more in-depth and meaningful cultural repercussions than what we see today. So what would they have done in that situation? I'd have to be there to know yeah. specifics. <laughs> 400 years but ago. One example is uh, we have what we call, we call back home is like a shame feast. Oh. And it's a potlatch where the person who committed the crime actively goes in front of the community and serves some sort of debt to the community and ensures that they will not commit whatever crime. And it can be for an, an entire range of things, but that's one way that people would settle that sort of dispute. A shame feast. Yeah. And, and, and so again, it's like, sort of like a court hearing. It's like stepping up, going in front of court. So we've been talking about salmon, but I want to give other examples of what management can look like. Something that's sort of hip and exciting in the world of archaeology and ecosystem management right now are clam gardens. Have you heard of clam gardens? No, but I would like to. So we have this inherent belief and I think a lot of people who have relationship with wildlife also feel the same way that human engagement and harvesting and hunting is necessary for populations to thrive. Human manipulation can make wildlife populations thrive, but it can also destroy them. And we just have to be very conscious of our actions. And it sort of goes back to that idea that we we're talking about in that wildlife, the numbers we see aren't just luck right now. It's it's an active participation with humans and non-humans. Clam gardens are a beautiful example of that. On the northwest coast, we have a lot of clam beaches, very prized resource. If you go into uh, an archaeological site, you will see what we call midden, which is built up clam shell and um, sort of ashy leftovers from fires, sort of minerals all clumped together but a huge majority is clam it's just the shells shells yeah and that's an old village site and it's a beautiful thing to see and so our people depended on shellfish a lot especially during winter that's the time to harvest shellfish you know we have those in australia too cool these old sites of just piles upon piles of of clam shells that have been harvested they're a beautiful site yeah because you can grab it and touch a shell that uh, I know for me, I can say, wow, someone in my lineage, we can date it. 8,000, 10,000, 12,000 years ago, touched this clam, slurped it up yeah. <laughs> and just like had a great time. Anyways, clam gardens, humans or indigenous people on the Northwest coast found ways to manipulate populations of wildlife to make other wildlife thrive. So one of these ways, if you imagine a rock fish trap where you have a wall, a rock wall on a beach that was intertidal, you could do the same for clams. My Actually, my PhD supervisor um, is quite involved in this research, and I hope I don't butcher it for her sake. Okay. And um, I've been around them, but it's not my job. To, I don't do the analysis on clam gardens. But what they are is a rock wall around a clam beach that would harness better clam growth. And so over time people on the Northwest coast sort of perfected these little gardens where the tides, they would build the rocks to the perfect height where the tide would wash sand over and sand would create a different elevation than the rest of the beach. 
that elevation would then affect the temperature of the water. That water would then affect all the plankton and every other species bigger than that. In turn, everything is having this like buffet feeding frenzy and clams grow two to four times faster and are two to four times more productive in that garden. Not only is this like sea life that benefit, but also we got wolves and bears on the coast who eat this. So when they eat that, they're bringing those nutrients through their scat, through all whatever ways into the forest, making that a nutrient rich forest. And you can actually look at the forests that are healthier because of the human manipulated things like fish traps where fish guts are making forests healthier or, or clams. So this wasn't just something that happened coincidentally or, or no, it's the, the, they knew what they were doing. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) And it just like there was intent to their actions that I think that's, Something that is really important to understand is that management on the coast for indigenous people was very intentional. And I'm, I can't just say the coast. I, indigenous people everywhere are quite intentional when it comes to wildlife management. And there's tons of literature on it. But for us, these are some of the examples of how we did it. Here's another example. Modern society, mainstream society, we have laws around hooks. Mm-hmm. Back in the day... We used to make halibut hooks. We call them new. They look like that. Yeah. And they, they're made of tzokotek is what we call it. You would. And there's oh, a piece of bone. The only piece of bone is, uh, the barb, the barb. Gotcha. And maybe you've heard this before, but they were only made for a specific size so that any of the halibut, the large female halibut could not take that hook. So just like we have laws around barbless hooks, that's a conscious law saying we don't want our people harvesting those big spawners, those big female halibut. One, they don't taste as good. But two, that's how we manage them. How did they record and pass on all this data? Thousands and thousands of years of just living on that land. You can imagine the daily distractions we have. And if you could put all that energy into just being on the land, yeah. you're you're conducting science. And people understand science in like a Western way. Really, this is science and you can sort of research the term indigenous science. Really what it boils down to is having a hypothesis, challenging factors that might make our hypothesis correct or wrong and sort of learning and molding these ideas. And so in that case, someone was obviously playing with building the hooks and saying this size of hook We'll get the pristine halibut that we want, one that's perfect for smoking the spine, one that's perfect for doing the thin slices so we can dry it and preserve it, one that's perfect that, you know, the right amount of fat content, that those sorts of things. Yeah. Oh, it's so cool. And so that's a lot. That's like what we would consider legal management. Yeah. And if you have all day to focus, like you, you, I mean, you bang the nail on the head. Think about all the distractions of today. Could you imagine if we could pour all of that energy into just survival and figuring out our surroundings? Totally. Wow. Okay. Well, let's, can I fast forward to today? Sure. Is there something that you really wanted to cover in the past? I mean, there's a lot to cover about the past, but <laughs> there's a lot, but let's fast forward. I, I had read in your email that you were frustrated with hearing other people talk about at the commercial, even the commercial fisheries of today. Yeah. Is that something that you've been putting a lot of effort into in your education or just in your life in general? It's, 
start off, it's complex and it's never black and white. I come from, on my mother's side, a family of commercial fishermen. When fishing was good, almost every single family in my community was employed through commercial fishing. And just like any human who lived on the coast, who had a background of growing up around those areas, it was easy to make a living. But at those times, you see this clash of like industrial harvesting of wildlife and industrial economics just smashing right into traditional forms of management and culture as I know it back home. And it's not clear cut on, on what's where it fits in well, let's say commercial fishing or gill netting for that matter. I've worked on commercial boats. I've gill netted for food fish, which I think we should talk about the difference between Aboriginal harvesting rights and general harvesting rights. I've gill netted for harvesting rights, which I think you refer to when you say people complain, yeah. well, the so-and-so Indians struck a gill net and they're pillaging this. The, yeah, th- this is a conversation I'm particularly interested in because when I used to guide on the Fraser, I will admit, and I am not like, you know, quote, racist at all. But even me out there, when the fish would stop running in and I'd see the natives netting, I would get really hostile about it quietly. But inside I'd be like, God, the fucking natives. Me, I would think like that. I can't even imagine somebody who, who may have some sort of, you know, racism within them or, or a history of, you know where I'm going. I don't want to dig myself too, too <laughs> deep of a hole here. Um, but I had, I just found I had a lot of misconceptions and, um, and I would like to address some of them if that's okay. So let's just talk to me about it. Hit me with it and, and, and enlighten me because it was a war out there with the guides. Yeah. It's messy. Is it still that messy? It is, right? Absolutely. Can we talk about it? Because you're right. In, in your email, you acknowledge that no one wants to talk about this because it's terribly uncomfortable. Absolutely. Which it is. I'm squirming right now. I'm like, shut up, April. Stop talking. But- I'm so excited to talk about it. So right off the bat, there's no black and white simple answer. What I can do is try to offer some of my thoughts and insight to hopefully make listeners understand the situation to a fuller extent. So what this boils down to is this like overhanging question of land. It goes back to the roots of Canada and who owns this land. And it's interesting because it ties into the hot topics of indigenous treaty hunting rights that are happening in the States right now with the Herrera. I was going to ask you about, yeah. Okay. So what this boils down to on a legal level is not, about waste or fishing or who's harvesting more than who or who's to blame around the act. What this boils down to on a societal level is who has stewardship over the land and why. It's sort of, if you picture it like a filter, that's how the gray area, the confusion, the oppression, the colonization, all those things filter down and manifest into on the ground what you've described, the tension. So on a political level, let's talk about British Columbia. British Columbia is unceded land. What that means is that this land has never had an official agreement 
to be owned by the Crown or Canada. There's very few treaties in British Columbia. There's only a, a couple. The rest of Canada are, I shouldn't say the rest, a large portion of Canada outside of British Columbia is treated. And that's an active agreement between Indigenous people as a governing body and Canada as a governing body and similar in the States. Whether the government, Canada or United States, legally fulfilled those treaties, that's a whole nother question. But that's the relationship. That's what it looks like. In British Columbia, there was never an agreement. And under colonial law, there had to be one. So Canada has actively just sort of bullied and asserted this ownership of British Columbia. To this day, it's not that black and white. It's just been assumed. It's an assumed authority. So for indigenous people... Because colonial law needed it, but the First Nations law was totally did if not. We, we think back to that sort of management piece that I was talking about you carve up British Columbia it was owned and it was governed for millennia and that tradition of gover- governance and ownership was much older than Canada has been and will ever be so how could they have fought that would it just have been a war so here's the at this point Canada wasn't into fighting wars with indigenous people it it's it's messy. There's some states where there's an act of bounty on indigenous people's heads, where they're getting shot, where they're getting hunted for for colonization to open up land. Yeah. By that time in Canada, when the when colonization sort of hit British Columbia, it was assumed that one, all indigenous people would be assimilated through residential schools, or two, the rest of them would have died off from smallpox. Horrible assumption. For the colonialists, if they wanted to keep colonizing, they shit the bed, so to speak, in their colonial vision. So they that didn't end up happening. So, I mean, in so many other places in the world, though, war, there's an outbreak of war. Somebody wins or loses. They take over the country. And to this day, that's, I mean, we call those countries what they are. Back then, if war had erupted and the quote unquote white guy had wiped out the indigenous people, would this even be up for debate or did this all kind of manage to sneak through the system because of assumptions? That's a really harsh question, but I'm just wondering if like if war had erupted, would this even be up for debate? Potentially. Yeah. It Well, it depends on who still existed. We could look at Newfoundland. There's a large population of indigenous people, I, the Bayotuk that have been wiped out. And there's a lot of complex politics that I don't understand. That's the East Coast, a whole different region. But it's a complex question that's still being addressed. And so, they, had, they had a war situation? Not in Canada at that at that time. Right. Newfoundland wouldn't have been a part of Canada at that time. Like, What about but, in the States? Did they go to war? Yes, totally. I mean, look at Custer. Right. So in a situation, perfect. So in a situation like that, do the indigenous people have rights to fall back on today, even though they may have lost the war? It depends on the geographical area and the laws that were in place when those events were happening. I think wars would have been, and just like countries, wars are fought, places are war-torn, and then sometimes amidst that, they come to an agreement. And that could have happened with treaties. It's so um, regional, isn't it? Totally. Okay, let's focus on BC because we yeah. both are from there and we, we were both passionate about it. So in the case of BC, under 
Canadian law now, there needed to be a release of title from Indigenous people to the Crown to have a right to that land. That right has never been given. So in our eyes, Canada has never gained that right. They've this just assumed is, it. Yeah, this is what all the drama was. It's all, it's literally flooding back to me now. And so it's based on this assumption that Canadians have this right when that's theoretically all illegal. It's illegally assumed land under their own court system. Didn't this go into the legal system again recently? Totally. So there's numerous court cases that are working with this sort of, this was laid out in the Royal Proclamation of 1763. And that sort of states that there has to be some relationship. And you continue into sort of more modern times. When BC, the populations of Indigenous people were at its lowest, again, it was assumed that it would just like, people could just move in. And it would be free game because either they're assimilating to white society or smallpox or smallpox, which was a really, I mean, even in Haida Gwaii, I read when I was oh, there. Oh, totally. And it, there it, was, it wiped out like what, what percent, 80% of the Islanders. 80 to 90. Yeah. That is shocking. And there's active management of smallpox by trading companies on behalf of the government. That's documented. I saw it. Well. You mean they sent in a couple yeah. of guys with smallpox on yeah. purpose to wipe, wipe them out. I did read that in the history. Yeah. Yeah. But I digress. So. So they did go to war. Well, not in the same, not, not in the way that we think of. Yeah. It was like a cowardly war, I guess. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Not in the same way. And it's complex. Like it's regional. There's been times where like colonists showed up on the West coast and they got boats were blown apart. They, you know, it's messy. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm just talking from a general view and it's important to understand this legal perspective because that's what influences our relationships now. Yeah. So in this, to this day, people need to understand that when indigenous people in British Columbia or in other areas talk about unceded land, it's based in Canadian legal law that is being broken actively by the Canadian government. And that's where this injustice grows from. And so let's, Bring it down to indigenous harvesting rights and non-indigenous harvesting rights. What does that look like? That looks like indigenous people having the same rights to harvest as they did and as they managed their systems for the last millennia, millennia and millennia. For non-indigenous British Columbians or Canadians, they have to follow Canadian law or provincial law when it comes to hunting and fishing. So indigenous people are on an entirely different legal category. And so we just have to accept that we're in these different positions. And that's how it stands today. A part of being connected to unceded land and having your own governance system is trying to not allow that to be threatened anymore. And you actively partake in quote unquote traditional acts or traditional ways of governing or traditional harvesting to exercise those rights. Because if you're not exercising them, you're sort of at a threat of fully assimilating. And 
what we see today is this culture of industrial fishing melting into traditional culture. And that's where we get gill netting for native food fish yeah. quotas. Because that's one of the arguments. I mean, I've got three arguments I'm going to, I'm going to mention to you throughout this conversation, but one of them is yes, traditionally the first nations people were entitled to, you know, they were taking fish, but not to sell for a profit or, you know, selling them on the side of the road for 10 bu- bucks a pop. I will take you down that road, but bear with me. Perfect. So the legal playing field today is in a place where we have two different racial bodies with different legal systems affecting them. And the sort of standard status quo approach by the government for a long time has been, why don't you just assimilate? Why don't you just follow these laws? And the majority of society is just saying that. Well, you can keep your culture and your your things, but just assimilate and follow our laws. And so I would like to propose to whoever, imagine if people from British Columbia or the Yukon just started infiltrating Alaska and saying, okay, this is ours and we're going to tell you how to hunt and fish. By no means would Alaskans sit there and take that. They would say, no, this is how we've done it. This is how we've governed ourselves. Back off British Columbia and Yukon and and that's the stance we're in. And I don't want to undermine that there's unceded territory in those places as well. But that's sort of the situation we're in. And so now the tune is sort of changing with governments. It, yeah, it, it, I thought it, this went to Supreme Court and that you, that the First Nations got their land back and just seemed like over the years there's been this real push to support First Nations. Is that all, is that all glam and glitz in the media? Some of it's glam and glitz. Some of it's, you know, a show for what reconciliation means. Uh, some of it is real. It's complex and it's all regional again. Just from my experience working in government for my nation involved with negotiations on whether it's treaty or land rights and seeing that often it all depends on what government is in power and whether you agree with their vision of how they want to manage British Columbia or whatever province. If we can accept that currently there's this conflict, tension, whatever you want to call it, where there's British Columbians that follow certain laws and others that don't. We can now sort of see that legally, I hope that listeners can understand that legally it is completely valid for indigenous people to continue to assert their rights to do this. Just like, as I mentioned in that sort of example with Alaska, Alaskans would continue to exert their right, I'm assuming, if British Columbians all of a sudden charged in and said, we're going to manage you. It's obvious that humans are going to say, no, this is what we've done for a while. It's worked. And by a while, I mean thousands of years. Why should we change? When you say rights, are you talking rights to how we used to survive and live or rights to how we would like to evolve and turn into business people and selfish for commercial gain? I'm, I would say rights in regards to having our own self-determination and deciding how we want to live. Both as future business people and as past survivors? We might not want to be future business people. Sometimes those business people just have to do it because they need to scrape by. Because 
indigenous people in British Columbia have a history of being the most oppressed, the most impoverished, and sometimes you're just trying to make money so you can scrape by, put food on the table for kids, just like any family is trying to do. So when it comes down to those decisions on a government level, indigenous people are saying we can manage and use these resources as we want. They are ours. Just like Canada is trying to say we manage them how we want because they are ours. And indigenous people are saying, no, your assertion has been assumed. It's, and it's not been proved legally under your own law. So you're just going backwards on your own law. And so there's this, that's where these court cases come up. And usually they're solved in the court cases if they're not solved through treaty agreements. And so the vast majority of British Columbia is not under treaty. So you see these ongoing court cases that sometimes they prove indigenous title. Sometimes they prove a few of them have like the Tzilkotin that's in interior British Columbia where they've proved that the Tzilkotin people had title over land. They're a valid governance body that has title. Now that level of law will be applied to every under indigenous that conclusion. But what you have to do is prove to the government that the ball's always in the government's court in the, these relationships. You have to prove your ownership to them. So there's this complexity of what's happening on the ground of like people carrying on the, the actions, the things they've done for millennia and these other, this other political implication. Indigenous people are going to continue to ensure they, their rights are honored just like any human would fight for their own rights to be who to determine who they are. And especially if you're connected to a culture to ensure that culture remains intact because of this, the stuff on the ground, the fisher, the guides fighting the, the people actively harvesting food fish. That's not a huge consideration on the top level because what's being threatened is indigenous rights as a whole. But if you can accept that and accept that those things are going to be solved in time through title cases, court cases, treaties, that sort of thing, we can try to address the issue on the ground. Why does the sportsman get pulled into it so often? You know, there'll, there'll be threats to shut down the river to steelhead fishermen or then threats to shut down guide fisheries. Why does the sportsman get pulled into it so often? Is it some sort of political ploy? Is it because it gets things moving and, and gets people so angry? Because people's lives are threatened on both sides. It's, it's like. Wouldn't there be more, more forward movement if sportsmen and the indigenous community team together to, I mean, we all want the same thing. We all want more fish and we all want access to them. Couldn't we work together to fight the government rather than let the government or the media pit us against one another. Totally. So this is the parallel between British Columbia and what's going on in the States with like the Herrera case and treaty rights to harvest. No government is saying, Oh, let's harvest this resource as irresponsibly as possible. We're going to fight for our right to harvest irresponsibly. Nobody's saying that. What people are saying is we need to make sure our treaty rights are honored because it goes much further than just hunting and fishing. It's it, That's a huge aspect of it, but it's beyond that as well. So that's something to keep in mind. But on the ground, the answer is yes. 
people can, and, and that's the way things are going. You can, you hear a lot about co-management with this reconciliation talk. And what that looks like is DFO, DFO as in the Department of Fisheries in Canada, creating partnerships with different parties, guides, commercial fishermen, and indigenous groups to hear those voices and make these calls. Again, we go back to this legal process. Is it actually DFO's decision to make on indigenous land? And so there's that necessity of bringing in the voice. And we're in that place right now. That's where we are. And so it's not black and white. And for people who are frustrated, get ready for several more decades of frustration. But we can do our best to make, have the intention to make this relationship as good as we can. And so what that potentially looks like is for indigenous communities, once we can step out of that defensive place of saying, no, we're going to assert who we are. If we have the power to control how we manage, by all means, we're going to assess how we're managing and ensure we're doing it sustainable because all of us, like you said, are trying to do this for the same thing so that the next generation and the generation after that and after that and after that can harvest and be in a relationship with wildlife. So we need that space to be able to create that management and we're doing that. We're doing it with government. We're trying to build relationships and how we do that, but it's built up into this tension of who's Whose land is... It always comes down to that. Yeah. It really does always come down to that. And so those are just these these feelings that get brought up. And so in our community, what we are trying to actively address is say, okay, to the Canadian government, federal and provincial, we have a right to manage fisheries. What we want to do is to ensure we can manage them under our moral our cultural values in a way that will be sustainable. If we put all those questions on the table and had the power to make that decision ourselves, I guarantee you we would, and we are questioning gillnet fishing in the native food fishery. It's not like we're just ignorant to the idea that steelhead are in, are threatened and we're just happy to be nailing threatened fish in a gillnet. Do you guys care about the survival of steelhead? I question if the government cares. I feel like it would just be easier for everybody if steelhead were gone. Did steelhead even play any sort of role in the indigenous culture and and history? Absolutely. Every single salmon has a very important piece in our day-to-day relationship with land. Every salmon has a role in the nutrients it provides to this world as we move through the seasons. Every run is at a different time. Each fish shows up. Each fish has their place in what life they give to this world. And you remove one of those and it changes it. And that's accepted and it's known. When you say that you guys would like to, or that First Nations would like to manage fisheries, do you mean just from the First Nations stance? I mean, because First Nations can kind of do whatever they want, can't they? Or do you mean to manage on all sides? I think that's it's a good question. <laughs> so here's the sort of part that I'm going to... There's two pieces to this question. We can do whatever we want. That's a question mark at the end by you. And do we want to control like Canadian, Canada's decisions on fisheries? Yeah, let's address the first part. The first part. 
that's the assumption that we're struggling with by the majority of Canada, that we are just loving mismanaged chaos and we're doing whatever we want. We don't do whatever we want. We follow the laws that have been in place for generations. Those laws have happened to be interrupted by industrial fishing. So you get these that sort of industrial life bashing cultural life in its head. What you see are those traditions mixing with gill netting, seining. And you can't go to a people and tell them to quit that cold turkey. It, it, it's super disruptive to a human society to just say how you're making your living, how you're surviving, done, find something else. But what we should do is question how to make it better. So when people are fighting over whether steelhead should be caught in gill nets, I think everyone can get behind that we need to make sure steelhead survive. We need to harness and enable their health as much as we can, as best we can. But what we need to do is give room for indigenous people to express their rights in a way that they can, we can assess the influence from industrial economies, all these things that have potentially negatively affected our environments and say, if we were to create a new vision, how would we do that? And that's the conversation that needs to happen with recognition that there's this land question and these long-standing previously governance processes in place. Something that I am passionate about in my research is sort of challenging current management practices through a system like that. Indigenous people are given the space to say, this is how we harvested in the past. What can it look like in our current system? And how do we engage with those traditional legitimate laws? What about the people who say, well, historically they used spears and they were standing off rocks. They didn't have nets. I mean, historically... English people have big poofy shoulders and their judges were like, why aren't you wearing that? <laughs> okay. You know, it's like <laughs> historically <laughs> 10,000 years ago, the in the fad was this like beautiful spearhead. But then like 2000 years later, it changed to a different kind of spearhead. Okay. <laughs> it's like that. That's just a, an argument based out of complete ignorance and opposition. Okay. Sorry to side rail you. <laughs> Keep going down the road you were on. Culture is always changing yeah. and it's never going to stop changing. And for us to assume that humans are going to quit evolving, we're just living in our own. Yeah. Plus the thing is, is that nets actually did exist way back when. I mean, exactly. with twine and they, they with cordage, there's, there's so many primitive skills out there totally. that did imply that netting did exist. And I we just, made nets out of stinging nettle. Yeah. So and it's, <laughs> at one right. point, stinging nettle didn't live where, you know, I do my harvesting. Yeah. Ecosystems changed. And at one point we got stinging nettle. So do you want me to rewind back to that time <laughs> when it was just ice there? You just would and be amazed how many people bring up the net issue. I've heard in my entire life. Yeah. So I, I wanted to just even, okay. you know, albeit very briefly, I did want to just acknowledge it. Totally. Okay. And I get that. Um, we can get back on track then. <laughs> okay. Essentially what it comes down to is the tools that we've been using that we've adopted and we can recognize that gill netting isn't the most sustainable tool and we need to address it. Just like, you know, at one point our entire village in Hartley Bay is run on a diesel generator. That's not the most sustainable way to run a village. 
but it's the only tool we had at the time. Yeah. But now we got to assess it and address it, but give us the space and the power to address it with our traditional laws. And so we're just in this complex place where it's all coming together. All of us are defensive because all of us are feeling one, our rights are threatened, our access to resources and our children and grandchildren's access to resources are diminishing. And it just causes for this like, a bad place to start a conversation. Oh, there's just a division immediately. Totally. And it's already rooted in hundreds of years of colonization. And, and so that just doesn't help. So where we go forward from my perspective is we look at our laws and say, these laws are sustainable. How do we incorporate them into current management? We do that on the daily. Let's say in the community, we say that island has deer. Let's go hunt that island. We know it's a healthy population. After a while, maybe there's wolves that show up. We need to trap some of those wolves. We need to keep that in balance. We need to ensure we're managing that. But tell the community, all the hunters in the community, that that island is going to be off limits for two seasons. Oh, I see how this happens. Okay. And so that yeah, would yeah. come down to the hereditary traditional system where whoever owns that island could make that call. And those decisions actively happen within the community. Elders would look at it and say, this isn't a good year for that beach. This isn't a good year for that area for fishing. This isn't a good year for that area for hunting. We did this this many seasons. Let's put a closure and then hunt this area. Just like we have hunting regions in BC. Hunting regions get closed. Bag limits get dropped. This exact same thing happens. So when the government doesn't necessarily agree with your management assessment... That's when the drama starts. Exactly. Ooh, couldn't you solve it? I mean, if, if we looked at it and, and there were two different sides, I hate what uh, sides. If the First Nations and the colonizers both own the country, can you not just band together so it's 50 50 when making decisions? Is that not possible? Does that happen? I mean, so do you guys have any call, the, any people, people from the government on your board or are there any people from First Nations on theirs? Totally. And here's the like, so I'll address one thing first. As someone in a place of privilege and power, it's great you brought that up because in our eyes, the assumption that it should be 50-50 is still illegal. Because remember what I said about unceded land? That still hasn't been settled in court. And so, again, back to that sort of metaphor, you saying that is like British Columbians going into Alaska, causing a whole bunch of shit, and then being like, okay, let's just 50-50, please. (laughs) And it's like, no, fuck you. We never agreed on 50-50. It should still be 100% our call. Oh, and this is where the tension starts. Yeah, because (sighs) Alaskans would be like, you British Columbians, you never had an agreement to just come and overpower us. And it's so hard because like, even you and I were friendly right now. And even I feel, I feel like a a mildly attacked and and offended by it. Because I'm like, what? No, this is all I know. My life is here. This is my everything. My daughter's life. Like, totally. This is ours too. Why can't it be 50-50? And so this is where, this is where it gets nasty. Cause think, I mean, we have all the time in the world right now to sit here and talk about it. Think about the people who don't have the time to talk about it. Yeah. 
or the willingness to talk about it. And think about the resources that are at stake being mismanaged yeah. because we're in gridlock. That is a gridlock. The hope is that this generation were able to accept that tension and move through it. How? Because like what? That's so scary. So like First Nations takes over a hundred percent ownership. What does that even mean? It's so like, funny that a, it's scary a, to you. As a privileged white person, I'm like, what, <laughs> what does that, what does that mean? What are you going to do? What does that mean to my rights? Does that mean that my, well, my land can be taken from me? When, first off, that's never going to happen. But like, what about the land that I bought? It's my home. It's my everything. Land can never be taken away from people who have purchased. So Purchased does, land and fee simple land that has been owned can never be taken away in treaty or any agreement between these two governments. Interesting. So how would that work if First Nations were to take over 100% ownership of British Columbia and I'd already purchased the land? You would think that they would have the right to just be like, no, we'll take that. Well, it would be a portion of the land that would still be under Canada. So what do you propose? What is your solution? My solution, I, I'm throwing around these sort of terms. I'll, I'll throw around these terms that I've already said. There's self-determination. It's indigenous people allowing to make that decision for themselves because we are our own governing body, recognizing that there has been mismanagement and there needs to be change across all level societies. And I try to stay away from this idea that indigenous people have managed everything perfectly forever. That's not the case. Like I said, we've gone through drought. We've mismanaged things. We've made mistakes. Traditional laws are in place based on those mistakes histories that made our culture change and grow are based on those mistakes. We have to accept that any culture, whether it's indigenous and Western culture is going to grow and change to try to get to the better. Let's hope we do that to get to the better. So for me, self-determination would allow for that. It would allow us to step back and say, okay, these are the, our territories that we have proof we have title over and we have proof that we've governed for millennia. What are the management practices that work? What are the tools that we can use, Western tools? What are the partnerships we can build that will, one, enable us to be healthy people, enable our wildlife to thrive, and enable us to have good relationships with our neighbors? And those are the questions you need to address, and we don't have the answer. But you can work it out on a a base-to-base demographic is it and happening right now? I mean, is this just taking forever is. because there's so many territories? Here's an example. DFO, building partnerships in our territory. We have on the ground, we have a guardian program. Have you heard of the guardian watchman? Uh, it, yeah, but I don't know what it is. It's a collective. It's a program. It's a, a role in many indigenous communities across the coast where they're actively on the ground sort of indigenous conservation officers. It's met with a lot of racism and it's it sucks because this is the step we sh- we want to be taking. We want, especially in our neck of the woods, it's so remote. We're the only ones on the ground year round, and so why wouldn't those people on the ground have the influence in decision making? Who are the only people on the ground all the time? Uh, like our community. What about? And this is so ignorant what I'm about to say and offensive, and I'm apologizing in advance. But I hear that a vast majority. Of the young people, the young generation of, of First Nations people are not on the ground. And, you know, you see them granted maybe in a reserve or otherwise, and they are totally out of touch with today's natural world. And I mean, I'm not even going to get into the standard stereotypes. I'm just talking about 
the people who are actually on the ground. I feel like there are just as many non-Indigenous Canadians on the ground as there are Indigenous people. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be addressed in that. I'll continue with the Guardian program and then try to address that. Thank you. I'm sorry. I know it is messy and that's part of the problem with these conversations is mess just ends up splattering everywhere. So it splatters, but hopefully we can mop this up. Yeah. Mop it up, baby. So the, the Guardian program is, or organization, is, ensures that people in communities on the coast are on the ground, on the waters every day, actively engaging with the land or waters. And so we take data, just like we did thousands of years ago. We watch the land, we monitor the shellfish, we monitor the fish populations, we do this. This is going on. And so when you say the majority of people Indigenous people aren't doing that. We're not in a position to debate that. It's just like, I, we could get statistics. I don't, I, yeah, there's a lot of in, urban Indigenous people. There's a lot of people that don't engage with the land. But the fact is, there's a hell of a lot of Indigenous people that are on the land and there's a hell of a lot of history and laws that can dictate amazing management. So let's focus on that. What this group would do, the guardians, is they carry out indigenous laws to manage and to steward territory under the guidance of band councils. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't have used that term through the governance systems because sometimes it's band councils, sometimes it's chief, hereditary chiefs. Uh, it, it's different for every community and this can make things confusing for listeners because there's different, that can be divided in communities. But let's say leadership would tell the guardians how to carry out stewardship in the territory. We should then have a relationship with Canada, the Department of Fisheries, to come together to brainstorm how we're actively going to manage resources. You, as someone on the ground who is not a part of Indigenous community, has every right to engage with DFO and do your part on that mission of making management a better place. And that doesn't mean that you're stuck in that box, by all means, you can have relationships with indigenous people. I, I I think we get stuck in this box where it's black and white and there's a dichotomy. You're either on one side or the other. We have non-indigenous, an amazing alliance to non-indigenous researchers that practice Western science. The difference is when we say we want to carry it out through our law and through our worldview and interpret it in our way, not interpret it through like a Western lens, they allow for that. So in my perfect world, non-Indigenous people would recognize Indigenous rights and title, recognize those governance systems, and accept them, and engage with them. We have adopted non-Indigenous people into our community. One thing that I tell them is the easiest way to make sense of this right off the bat is that you have a dual citizenship. When you're in our territory, you follow our laws and you recognize them. And and that's ensuring that Indigenous people have that strength and, and that have that self-determination. When you engage with our community, we're the governmental body. When you go back to Canada, you do that. And so... Yeah, there's these hurt feelings that people are like, oh, why can't it be 50-50? Why can't they just join us and we can all be happy? And and what that is saying is like, why can't we just accept all these injustices and and just sort of move forward in the culture that we prefer? 
which is that's like superiority complex that's colonial complex at its finest because it's like our status quo is the right way why can't you just come be like us and we'll be okay do you think that what we're in though is we're in a situation where like today's world is just next level sensitive but also entitled do you feel like you're in a highly advantageous position right now being in a time where the world is so sensitive because a hundred years ago, they, I'm sure they would have handled it differently than, than they are today. I feel like now with the exposure and the media, you actually might be able to push further ahead with, with this than you may have been able to a hundred years ago. Am I right on any of that? I don't think we can boil it down to sensitivity or like political rec- correctness or any of these things. I think we can boil some things down to an awareness of justice in society. I mean, we're at a stage where they're tearing down old statues. Great example. They tore down John A. McDonald, right? McDonald, yeah. Yeah. Down a statue. And everyone was flipping out and they're like, at that, let's just accept him that he's this Canadian figure and he made mistakes and it was in the past. And it was like, that's fucking bullshit. There were people at the time in Parliament saying, this is wrong, John A. McDonald. You're a racist. You're a bigot. You should not be doing this. So you agree with taking it down. So what point do we start to just erase history? Because uh, I, not, I don't uh, agree with what everyone does, but I don't agree with tearing it as a history. Okay. Buff, I don't agree with tearing it down. Let me back up. I think you put words in my mouth. What I'm saying is we're using this excuse that it's his, historical and that was a, an action of like his regular. That was status quo back then. Being a scumbag was status quo. Yeah, but that's not was. the case. Right. That's what no, you're mainstream saying society that they, is assuming. Yeah. And there were plenty, there was plenty of opposition to that at the time. And so what people are missing is that that not everybody wanted his statue erected. I got gotcha. you. And that's that's the narrative that people are following, which is not a real narrative. Do you, do you think the statue should have come down? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I well, it comes down to why the statue was there and what it symbolizes. My assumption, I've never even seen the statue. <laughs> My assumption is that it symbolizes Canada's sovereignty and John A. Macdonald representing that sovereignty. I would say that sovereignty and his representation and how he achieved that sovereignty is shameful. And if you want to project shame in that way, then keep it up. If you want to talk about it and say, how are we going to deal with this shame and this tension that he represents? And if your decision is to not honor that by taking it down, do it. If you want to honor that shame by leaving it up there and talking about that shame and displaying that shame, leave it up there. I think there needs to be a meaningful conversation like that about it on whether it stays or goes. I but feel I'm not about to jump on any side without some meaningful dialogue around it. It's a real scary thing to me that we might be starting to erase our history because I think we learn from our history. I think rather than tearing our history down, that we should be raising up the things that we maybe don't know or that we're, that are just coming to light now. And that's what we're doing. That's why we're sitting here. We're trying to 
lift up the history that maybe we don't know and raise it higher than the history that we do know that maybe is incorrect or wrong. Sure. Um, but it is a scare. I just was curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, Cause it's and- a scary time for me. Like I'm all for lifting this, this history that the unknown history up the schools, those horrible residential schools. I want people to know about that, but I don't want to tear down the rest of the history in the process. Totally. And that's why I don't want the words in my mouth that I'm like, yeah, tear down that statue. What I want is a meaningful dialogue and saying, how do we analyze this and how do we move forward? Okay. So back to you, what would you like to see? So, so if, if, if first nations were to take over 100% of ownership, there would still be areas that belonged to Canada. So do you feel view yourself as a Canadian? That's another great question. Can I answer something yes. else before? <laughs> Sorry, go for it. Back to that idea of how people would have dealt with this 100 years ago. I think it's about knowledge and education. Yeah. And so as long as people have the right tools for knowledge and education, they can come to thoughtful, healthy solutions. And that's what it boils down to. In regards to my perfect world, where Indigenous people have rights, have stewardship, have self-determination, we have to accept that humans go through conflict. And it's our responsibility to make healthy decisions around that conflict for the betterment of our lives and for human society. I have to just come out front so people know my feelings on this. My feeling is that by utilizing indigenous knowledge or on wildlife and on our ecosystems here on the coast, by giving that knowledge power, we will become healthier people. That's just my belief that these ancient knowledge systems hold a lot of value when it comes to moving forward and addressing our vision for moving forward as humans. In this world where indigenous people have rights, it's it's funny that it's so scary because it's already happening and people don't really know that's happening. The Niska Treaty, the Nass River, it's happened there. They have a treaty. They have their land. Mind you, it's like, I think the estimate is 6 to 9% of their traditional territory that they had their rights to. It still happened. And the extent it affects non-Indigenous people is not that much. There's hunting regulations where some people need permits, some there's closed areas, but you get that anyways with protected parks. But that's remote. What happens if tomorrow First Nations take over ownership of Vancouver? I, that's simply not going to happen. I, <laughs> but what if it did? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get too theoretical here, but you're saying that if, if land's already been purchased, that it can't be taken back. Yeah. Okay. So if, if First Nations were to get 100% ownership of Canada, they wouldn't own Vancouver. Under current like treaty process? No, they couldn't own any of that land that's already owned, which is. Do you think they should? Well, it's frustrating because that land was never. The discussion of the transition of ownership and stewardship of that land was never done in a moral and just way. When for our people, our narrative was we had that agreement with the government. We expected that. And we've just continued to expect the government to be honorable in this relationship. That's all we want is an honorable relationship. And they have not held up that side of being honorable. 
And that's why it's frustrating. And that's why you look at a place like Vancouver and yeah, I, I, all I can really say is that I accept or I assume indigenous people in Vancouver have to accept all that privately owned land is never going to be theirs. But people have to understand that the government got hold of that land in an immoral way, in an unjust way. And this is where this like sort of guilt comes up and defensiveness because it's like, I never stole land from Indians. I've never done that. I'm a good person. And that's not helpful. Uh, Those are feelings that are true and you can recognize those feelings in that it's uncomfortable and we, we need to move through that. But what we need to discuss is say, okay, moving forward as a society, how do we make sure our actions are just? And then we need to put our governing bodies accountable to justice. How, how would you show justice to somebody who owns a hundred acres in Vancouver? How would you want them to show justice? I, I think it depends on the person. I, it's, I get uncomfortable talking to territory that I'm not familiar with. Sure. But in, in your region, if, if somebody came in and if I owned a hundred acres in your region, what would I have to do? This has been done where people acknowledge like I'll transfer this land to the original title holders as long as you allow for me to continue living my life and continue to exercise my rights as in your case, as a Canadian citizen, I'll hunt, I'll fish, I'll do what I, but I'll build a relationship. And if I'm speaking from April's, I'm April. I own a hundred acres. I believe in this indigenous community's vision. I agree with how they want to propel themselves forward in self-determination, governance, management. I would say I'm going to return this land back to the lineage that rightfully held it. I hope that I can continue to live the life I wish to live in a good way moving forward, which has been done. Uh, people have who own properties have transferred land back. You, you've seen that with trap lines sometimes too. Um, it goes back to, but then they can't pass it on to their children. Yeah. And so that's the moral dilemma out hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then you still have to pay money to the government and land tax, don't you? Totally. But this is because if I was a single woman and I am only going to live for myself, I really wouldn't care. I mean, we have situations in Australia where there's Shelley Beach, for example, that whole area of these $5 million houses, that's how much they cost. That whole area of land is owned by the church. And so you can't own your $5 million house. You can pay $5 million for your house, but it's a 99-year lease. You never own it. Right. So that does happen. But if I was a single woman, I'd go ahead and I'd I'd do that. I wouldn't buy a $5 million house, but I'd I'd hand my land over if I had to. But my daughter changes everything, right? You want to pass it down. And and I want to, and and where it gets really conflicting is I want to pass it down to somebody I'm raising to appreciate and love that land. How do I know if I give that land to somebody else in the First Nations community, not my daughter, that they're going to do the same thing? When I can see they don't know their roots and they're not in touch with their culture, that's a big gamble for me. You know what I mean? I want to die and know what's going into the right hands. And obviously I want my daughter to be taken care of. So I can't, I mean, surely it's going to be hard for someone to actually make that sort of sacrifice. And then me saying that, like, is there any resentment towards me saying that? Can you understand that I wouldn't want to give up my Totally. Property? So 
I understand. Okay. There is resentment in that we've painted a picture that is very unrealistic. Indigenous people are not asking for land that is already owned back. Right. <laughs> Right. And so this is like this projected fear of white people. Yes. They're going to take my land. Yes. That's not happening. Okay. So if you guys were to get 100% ownership, though, and, you wouldn't be taking the land back. Which And you have established that throughout this whole interview. So I don't want to paint a, a colorful, inaccurate picture. But I am going to bring you back to when I asked you if you think that you're Canadian. Do you think that you're a Canadian? So... I was actually just guest lecturing in a class and someone asked this. And I, I really like this question because it's so philosophical to me. It's not about... A lot of this is philosophical. Yeah. So when I'm asked that question, I often think, what does it mean to be a Canadian? And what it means to be a Canadian to me is to live in what we see as Canadian culture live this sort of lifestyle that you would see as status quo Canada to live under laws and morals and values that the majority of Canadians live under and also be a sort of registered citizen. I put those same questions to whether I'm Jim Xian. If you tick those boxes, I live my life, I believe, in a way where I am way more conscious of Jim Xian law and morals and values than I am on a daily basis. And I would argue, and I love this about my community. If you go to my community unconsciously, subconsciously, or even other communities, Canadian law isn't prevalent. Canadian being a Canadian isn't prevalent. The culture, the laws, the values that guide everyday human life are not Canadian. And that's the most important part of this on paper. I'm a registered Canadian, just like every, pretty much every other Indigenous person in Canada. On paper, I'm also a status Indian under the Indian Act, so I belong to these two governments, and it's like a dual citizenship. But on a, a purely personal level, there are very few times I feel that I personally embody the Canadian experience and identify as a Canadian because of that. And I think it's... It gets complex because there's ethnicities within Canada, but at large, you're under this like law, rule of law of being a Canadian, but you're practicing your culture and you're living your ethnicity. Yeah. That's like valid. A, I wonder, like, so a Chinese person exactly. who lives there, same thing, right? They're still Chinese, but they're, but they live in Canada yeah. and abide by Canada's rules and are Canadian in, in that, in that aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the fear, yeah, you were, your eyes lit up about this fear. We began this conversation talking about resource extraction, development decisions in our territory. When we're the sole popul the huge majority of population in our area, when we're the ones who are actively managing it, because we're the ones on the ground with our guardian programs, we're the ones who have the capacity to make these decisions on what should be managed as opposed to a conservation officer that shows up once a year or DFO that sort of cruises by. It's unreal to hear the podcasts with like the meat eater crew and all these hunting podcasts where they talk about conservation officers and talking to them. The game wardens. Game wardens. I have never once talked to a conservation officer while hunting or fishing. How many indigenous people have you run into out there? 
that's all I, I'm, that's the majority of what I see. But again, we're remote. So why I bring that up is that the actual management is still indigenous people. The boots on the ground, the people affecting and manipulating the wildlife, engaging with these wildlife systems, the vast majority are indigenous people and their governance systems. So when it comes to dealing with unceded land, the government still has this assumed superiority that if it's pipelines, if it's tankers, if it's mining, if it's any of these things, they're still in this place where they have the better insight on what this geography of Canada and Indigenous people needs as a society and they have the right to make that decision under their law. They have a better insight on the politics and the money behind it. Yeah, they're tied to the global economic system. They've got investors from all around the world, and it's super complex. And what you see today now is Indigenous people trying to cut out the government as a middleman and going directly to those investors if they're pro-development or if they're... And that's their own decision. Us and me personally, I get extremely frustrated with the fact that people who have no connection to that land and no insight to it have much more power when it comes to a yes or no question of whether there's going to be extraction or not. But I feel like up north, everything has to be run by the First Nations community first. Everything. I mean, I find every time that we're in some sort of proposal or some sort of, you know, debacle with some sort of extraction company, it's always like this overhanging cloud in the room of we're waiting to hear back from the indigenous community. And then we're all like frantically rushing to come and talk to you guys to try to sway you one way or the other. Don't you guys have to be consulted first? We do have to be consulted, but it, it's complex. And what it generally looks like is the government is sort of swooning these investors to get lots of money coming in to build an economy on this thing that may or may not happen. They make these promises to investors that are from outside places and they're courting them in a way that has all this, these prosperous visions in the global economy. While they're doing that, they're sort of doing a two-faced thing where they're promising all of these riches of extraction with foreign investment. And then with the indigenous people, they're saying, okay, we're going to make sure this is sustainable. This is green. This is going to be good for your territory. It's going to be good for your people and we'll mitigate all these issues. And so consultation is that act of like saying what mitigation is and mitigation is like prevention of pushing things too far when it comes to extraction in their eyes and and how do we mitigate those issues whether it's an oil spill or polluting water from this project or do they ever come with buyouts totally it it and it depends on the the project and the company different companies handle things differently um and do different tribes is it tribes villages uh, nations generally do different, different nations do different nations handle it differently oh totally there are nations that are anti-development all the way. They want no development on their territory and they want to be able to, they're willing to sacrifice that economic prosperity. I'm doing that in the finger quotations to be able to have healthy ecosystems, to have healthy relationships with those ecosystems. There's also nations that are willing to develop their entire territory so they can become this giant profitable organization, corporation, all, and you get it across the board. 
in our neck of the woods, um, it's not hard to see that we're often fighting against the development of these quote unquote wild places. I use that. I mean, I don't like the term wild because it suggests that it's like yeah. outside of human, yeah. but humanness. The, but pl- the places, places it, as they were. Yeah. Like these pristine areas yeah. where we'll ecosystems just- <laughs> are intact in yeah. a healthy way compared to a lot of other urban areas or developed areas. And so, yeah, we're often on that side of the fence where we're defending from that. And when it comes down to these decisions, the government does not give the First Nation a veto. It's it's a bully tactic 100% of the way where it's just sort of like budging through and like, well, you can't really say no, but if we do this, what do you want? How do you want us to mitigate it? Well, we can't say no, but if you if you're worried about this, what can we do? Then what's the point? That's what a lot of people say. That's what a lot of organizations get frustrated with. And it it continues into the actual process of building. There's a different contract for the tanker than there is the pipeline. So if you're frustrated with the tanker company, they say, well, this pipeline causes this threat. Well, that's out of our jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy to pass the buck in these different areas. And so that's the sort of mess of like resources and negotiating these relationships around resource development in in our neck of the woods the point where it really gets down to indigenous people having power is when we challenge it in the courts the 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history designed by john browning the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the u.s military from 1911 to 1985 while colt produced the original almost every major firearm company has produced its own version it's wildly revered for its reliability crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So remember when I talked about unceded land. That is still a question. As we sit today, Canada has not proved that they own our territory. So we can take them to court if we want to launch a title case to say, we can prove this is our territory. You have to have millions of dollars of ready, ready with lawyers and with research and all this stuff to be able to be in a position to take that on. And that's why you don't see every nation taking well, on a title that's case. That's what I was going to say. If that's the case, how come everyone's not doing it? It's how, because we're the poorest people in Canada. How many cases are pending right now? I couldn't tell you. But there are some. Yeah. 
Yeah. Talk to me about poorest people in Canada. When we hear about buyouts or that the First Nations people get paid and they get, what, what are the checks that they get paid? <laughs> like when I, when I, hear, I have never seen a check for being an Indian. What? <laughs> you're, you're kidding though, right? No. I'm I not. thought I always had grown up under the belief that the First Nations living on reserves got monthly checks. There's got to be some truth in some of this. Please tell me I'm not being fed bullshit. <laughs> You're being fed bullshit, but there's like complexity to the bullshit. Okay. What is some of the complexity? Um, the bullshit is this generalization that indigenous people just get free money. The truth is that First Nations are managed just like any government body where there's this ongoing relationship between provincial governments, federal governments, and municipal governments. And just like any sort of government body, funding moves through one party to the next. Federal governments give funding to X body to ex- have these expenditures on whatever to make society function, whether it's your roads, whether it's your education, whether it's your health care. The same thing happens for indigenous communities because right now legally we're wards of the government until we, those things get negotiated when you have a treaty or when you, if you successfully win a title case and you engage in self-government, you negotiate what it means to be a ward and how separate you are from Canada and to what degrees, whether it's education, healthcare, you, you negotiate that. Do you get paid more the more separate you are from Canada? Uh, there's, it's very complex. It's too complex to answer. Yeah. But you're telling it, me when I drive through a reserve, let's just keep it, let's just keep it regional right now. Let's say I drive through Morristown. Yeah. You're telling me that not every single person that I drive by is receiving a monthly check. They are definitely not receiving a monthly check for being Indian. What they do receive is for the majority of this, like this idea of like Indian money, the majority of what people receive is the exact same that Canadians receive, which is healthcare education. Have you heard this before? Like, Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm, I'm here, getting there. I'm sitting yeah. here cringing. People listening right now have no idea because they can't see us, but this is so hard for me. Yeah. It's, <laughs> to have this conversation. Totally. Aired out, it's but, a tough conversation. I, you know, well, like you ignorance, said, right? Like I hate drawing attention to my own ignorance and, and I feel like a lot of this could be solved with me just getting on the internet. But what happens is on the, I've tried on the internet. I get hit with so many different viewpoints, so many arguments. I figured the best way for me to do this is just to sit down with someone and talk to them. Here's (laughs) money is funneled to different kinds of government in Canada. And the education you see comes from the government, just like the education I would have got my elementary school. There wasn't a reserve elementary school in Burns Lake. So I went to public school, but Prior to that, I went to the school on the reserve and then there's high school. They would have received funds from the government because there's these nations are still wards of the government under the Indian Act. We still have our status cards. We haven't developed a treaty that makes us fully separated. When you hear these sorts of assumptions about people getting money, it's complex. Sometimes... When nations have the ability to make decisions with resource extraction, make decisions with whether they start a business or a corporation, they can decide how they want to spend that money. Just like a family who owns a corporation decides how they spend their money. 
It just so happens that that corporation includes an entire community. And if they made a profit off logging and want to cut a check where they give it to their community as, as like members of the community, just like I've, what do you want to in a BC examples like save on just like Jimmy Patterson and save on would ensure that there's funds moving to his own family. Indigenous people have that right. If they've, they control the money in that way. And so that can often get misconstrued into, you know, this turned into some sort of inheritance from the government, that money that flows in, in that way is never just for being Indian or just, that's just not how it works. How it works is per capita, any population in Canada gets X amount of funding for education. And so when people say these numbers, oh, there's this many people on reserve. So Canada sends you this much money per person on reserve. That's not the case. What you get is funding for education, funding for health, funding for basic municipal stuff like sewage that usually isn't insufficient. And when people talk about education, generally the amount of funding that goes into these reserves is far less per capita than what you get in mainstream society. And so sometimes what the government tries to do to make up for that is offer like different ways to support post-secondary education. And again, every nation will deal with that differently, how they see fit on how they want to pursue their own family members, their community. By family members, I'm referring to like a community, a nation, how they want them to navigate that system. But never is the government saying, you're an Indian, here's a check. Do you ever look at people in your own circle or people you know personally, people you grew up with, and does their behavior frustrate you because it feeds into the stereotypes that are so often laid upon them? I try not to give stereotypes power. So how do you handle both sides when it comes to moving forward? Because you want to move forward, it's clear. Of course, yeah. I I recognize and accept that... Human oppression in societies creates a complexity where the ones being oppressed are always struggling worse in that, however that human society looks. And so I try to balance my frustrations by recognizing injustice, recognizing people's personal choices, and recognizing the need for support and healing and that there's all these pieces of puzzle that come together and it's just not one thing. So I can't just look at someone that I'm disappointed in and be like, damn, that ruins my day. That makes this vision I have of empowered indigenous people, not a reality because it's just not the case. And it does. I mean, it's the same thing with women, right? Like you could say, April, how do you do seeing these women selling their bodies on social media or selling sex? Does that exhaust what you're trying to change in the world? No. I mean, I look at it as, well, that that's really unfortunate, but I'd rather empower you rather, you know, than focus on on how you're bringing us down. It's, it is irrelevant. Yeah, it is irrelevant. I'll give you that. So moving forward, talk to me. What would you like to see someone like me? And people listening who are primarily sports men and women, how would you like to see us make a difference to move forward? I think it's all about building relationship and being open to that relationship. For me, 
I, it was a struggle for me to accept Western science. I've been very critical of it and I put a lot of weight to my traditional teachings and beliefs in spirituality. For example, you love to talk about catch and release. Mm-hmm. I grew up my entire life. Every, I remember being like five years old and having a very explicit experience where an elder drilled it into my head that you cannot release a fish if you catch it. And I'm sure you've heard this. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, there's stories, there's morals, there's values behind this. And that it goes back to that idea that I talked about, uh, about that book, Ecologies of the Heart, human societies that give spiritual and emotional connection to their relationship with wildlife end up being more sustainable because you have a, a huge group of people being more conscious about these things as opposed to a select few being very conscious. So in this aspect, I've grown up with those teachings in that when animals give themselves to you, there's a spiritual connection there. And if you let it go, you're directly disrespecting that animal's agency and the power that animal has. And you're fueling this superiority complex that we have as humans. And so the example with catch and release is that we think we're doing something beautiful by like catching a fish. if like we're doing the good deed by letting it live. Not everybody feels that way. No. Yeah. I'm sort of trying to create a dichotomy to make this, try to make this make sense. We're sort of in this position where we're playing God, where we're like, we're the sole person with agency. And that's not what I've been taught. What I've been taught is our relationships with animals are much more complex than that. And they have agency. And at times they choose to give themselves to you. I mean, I don't want people to come to this idea and like rip it apart and say, well, that's stupid because they can if they want, but there's all these other reasons. There's stories and teachings and reasons why this is the case. The reason I bring this up is because I think in the future, I think we need to take these two world views and put them together and say, what are the reasons humans made these decisions to make it sort of a law or a tradition or a culture? Why is it that indigenous people, at least in my neck of the woods, believed for thousands of years that playing with a fish and not taking it and killing it at, a, at in the end was illegal and led to bad repercussions in the long term. Because it's not like people did these things just, they didn't just make up laws for fun. Another example is when I learned how to hunt, it's probably very different than what your average Canadian hunter when they learned how to hunt. I was not allowed to hunt until I did ceremony and I saw an animal come to me and tell me that I was allowed to kill it. So I think across many indigenous cultures in Canada and other places too, there's this recognition of agency amongst animals, amongst weather, amongst plants, amongst all these things. As a side note, this is where like this idea of like animals being the only sentient beings really gets my goat because it's this ignorance that like plants aren't sentient beings. We've proved now through science that 
trees communicate with each other. I have read that. There's amazing research on that. And, and, and to just pretend that plants and other beings aren't thinking and actively doing things through thought is just, but again, in our culture, we've been saying that for years and it's kind of been a no brainer. And that's what we, we, we learn from our elders. Anyways, I was talking about, I didn't hunt until I went through a ceremony where an animal actively told me I was allowed to harvest it. And this is where I'm talking about this because it's my own personal journey. And often it's hard to talk about these things because we worry about appropriation. We worry about new age ceremony and, um, the, uh, the ridicule of, uh, of, of, do you mean in today's society yeah, or in the to, First Nations world? Oh, in, in, as indigenous people talking about our culture, appropriation and profit, people selling, non-indigenous people selling indigenous ceremonies, uh, for, yeah, economic benefit, um, just, you know, appropriation of culture, art, all these things, songs right. for profit is something we're hyper aware of and is super disrespectful. So, but in this case, I'll continue the story of when I first, there were numerous elders telling me how I should hunt and doing their best to groom me in the way that they were told how to, and taught how to hunt. So a part of that was the spiritual aspect of hunting. And people talk about these, these laws, these protocols of spiritual relationships with animals and hunting as if they're a thing of the past. There's, you know, journals of explorers and people who talk about it, but these things are actively going on still. It's just, they're not in the mainstream. And so for me, that's how I was brought into hunting. And a dear friend of mine helped me out a lot through the process while being guided by elders. My very first animal I took, there's a series of things you have to do in the ceremony. Sometimes it involves fasting, sometimes different kinds of cleansing, depends on the culture. But the animal came to me, it told me how it was going to get shot, where it was standing, what direction I would shoot it in, and how it would fall, how it would die. This is in a vision. <laughs> Dream. Yeah, yeah. And I, those terms are like hard to use too because they get so involved in like the hippy-dippy new age stuff. But yeah, and it played out that way two days later. I can't explain it to this day. The point that I think I'm trying to get at is that these are some practices that involve some deep emotional spiritual relationships with things other than outside the human capacity to be an agent with m management, with wildlife. And I know I talked about the benefits of humans manipulating ecosystems, like the clam gardens that benefit everything. Um, we also have to accept when to step back. And that's something you ask, how do we move forward? I think people need to be open to that idea. And the more open you are to different cultures, interpretations of hunting and fishing, the bigger our toolbox is. The bigger our toolbox is to solve issues. The bigger our toolbox is to be a moral person. The more we, we grapple with these ideas and put thought into them, the better it becomes. Because never is it better to be thoughtless. Yeah. So these practices, I mean, 
I, I want to say, you know, again, we don't just do these for fun. It's not like it, you just go and do them because you're, you're someone from back in time. Like you're trying to be an Indian back in time. It's no people did them for thousands of years because these practices worked. I'll try to tie this thought together with a story I said I was going to mention in the beginning. And again, it's hard for us to talk about specific stories. I'm going to talk about this one because it's published and I've seen it published and, and our elders are very particular about what sacred stories are shared and what's protected. And, and it, it's just like academia. Things need to be, you have to give recognition of where they come from and, and who has ownership over writing or, or a story or a ceremony or whatever. I was told by the old people when humans showed up, they were the most pitiful thing. And I want this to challenge how we understand our agency in wildlife. Like we're the ones at the top of the food chain and, and what, what that means to think in that way. In the story, the, the humans, they show up, they're the last people to show up on this land. By people, I'm talking, I use people as like wolf people, bear people, tree people. In our language, in our way of talking, we refer to them as their own society. They're people, they have their own societies. We have our own treaties with them and agreements. We were the last to show up and all the people got together in their own societies and they said, what are we going to do with this thing? How are we going to treat them? Look at them. They're pitiful. They, they don't know what they're doing. And the animals already had their treaties with each other. They, they had their agreements with each other and deer says, well, I already have an agreement with predators. I'll use that word. That's not the word that's used in this story. I have an agreement with predators. I consciously recognize that I hold a very important role to give my life for all these other things to give life. And I accept that. Plants stand up. They say the same thing. I recognize who my relationship, my agreement with this being or person, I give myself to them. And so they started talking and they said, I'm willing to give myself to this person, these humans. They need us. Another being said that, another one. And then the bear stood up and it says, I'm willing to be their teacher. I'm willing to be their closest relative. I'm willing to do two things. I'm willing to let them, I'm willing to give my life so they can eat. And I'm also willing to teach them as a parent. As long as they recognize that in their relationship with all of us, they rely the most on everyone else. They're most vulnerable. And because of that, they have to give the most thanks and honor to us. As long as they continue that agreement and recognition. And it goes on why we learned to harvest what things we learned and what things the bear taught us to harvest and all these other things. But the point of the story, the point, the moral that I really want to get across is that in that worldview, we understand ourselves at the bottom of the sort of like the food chain isn't the right word, but in the scale, this pyramid, we are the most vulnerable being in all these relationships. We rely on absolutely everything else, way more than they rely on us. And we need to start, as a society, I hope that we can start incorporating those values, those teachings, that that sort of awareness of 
humility when it comes to hunting and fishing, because that's the humility that drove, in my mind, indigenous management for so long. And when we go back to the, I, I don't think I finished my thought on, on like catch and release. When we do these actions, we have to do them out of humility in that original treaty, that original agreement we had with those animals. And that one with the fish completely disregards and spits on it. And so in my mind, I feel so horrible when I release a fish. Do you catch and release? I, it depends on the day. I keep it more than I release it, but would you keep a wild steelhead? That's what I really wanted to bring up is we have to use these tools and these values to make sense of new issues with that situation. I think it's about intention. And again, it goes back to how we see ourselves in this relationship with the animals. In this case, I don't see myself as so superior that it's my right to decide what I do with every single animal. I, I, I honestly give agency to these animals. But when we see new situations where something like steelhead is so threatened, I have to make that call. Do I blend these two different ways of knowing together? We honestly know through like data, scientific data, it doesn't have to be Western science, also indigenous side, just by being on the land, you can see that steelhead are doing bad. I can make that call with morals and values in a good way and saying, I can choose to release this, I hope, out of respect, and that I was, let's say, maybe targeting another species. Would you go target them? I would never, I've, I've never targeted steelhead in my life. And because the recreational fishing practice doesn't fit in, it can't fit in with your beliefs. Yeah. And that's what we get to with catch and release is it just, and so I'm not expecting people to believe what I'm saying 100%. I'm not expecting to accept that. What I would hope they would too is see these two very different dichotomies in this world of fishing. And say, you know, let's challenge these ideas and ask why we're doing what we're doing and what we can do healthier. I think that that conversation is happening. Totally. And it, it's, and it's happening in all the different aspects of indigenous, non-indigenous relations, knowledge systems that we've talked about today. And I just hope it becomes more prevalent. It is a conversation that's high on my radar. I promise you that. I can't work with you or understand you until I've communicated with you and taken time to come and explore more about you and your culture. So how do I get to learn more about the communities around me without walking in? Because I'll be honest, and, and I have spent some time in the Indigenous community and they've actually been fantastic with me, but I always feel really awkward when I walk into, you know, their quote unquote community and, and I get looks I mean, do you have any advice for somebody who wants to learn more but doesn't know how to? Um, because we don't have to agree, but at least we can listen and learn from each other. So how do, how do people get in? How do, what's the in? <laughs> I, it's variable. Yeah, it's variable. It depends on the community, but in general, it's just being open to those discussions and not giving up 
on people simply out of predisposed beliefs or assumptions and being willing to put effort into the relationship. I think when I first started, I, I mentioned how hard I was on science. Um, and yeah, a light clicked on me one day. I was like <laughs> doing archaeology with one of my very good buddies who grew up as a, considering himself like a sports fisherman. And I was just ragging on sporties. Because it's also not a sport. Can we just get that out there? Come on. Yeah. Especially in BC, sport fishing. I don't know. I don't know what's sporting about it, but anyway, totally. we can have another conversation. And so about I that was later. saying a bunch of things I regret saying. Sure. And he was like, Spencer, why are you so hard on like sporties? I consider myself a sporty and this is all I know to do. And to me, all I'm doing are good things. Yeah. I'm being a good person abiding by laws that are supposed to be good. Yes. Yeah. And so we have to, and that for me was that point to be like, wow, okay. Our belief in our own legal systems is just as relevant to each other and realistic. And so we have to sit there and have that discussion about that future on if we were to go fishing together, what would it look like? And how do we move through that discomfort? Yeah. And that's all it comes down to is having the perseverance to move through these like human conflicts that we see over and over in the history of our species. And so I, that's the only advice I can give is just making those connections and, and being open to those discussions and the examples I used around spiritual beliefs to wondering what's going to happen to this land I'm on and how rights impacted just being open to that discussion and being able to question where your own thoughts come from. But you can only be open to the discussion if you have access to it. So how does somebody access this discussion? Do you walk to, I mean, I've walked into, you know, like a band office yeah, and asked permission to fish property, for example, and have actually made some relationships that way. When I had my television show, I had a couple of wonderful native women on the show. They were amazing, super eye-opening, and they completely welcomed me into their home. It also made for discussion. I caught my first steelhead. I had actually gone down um, through a reservation in, on the Chilliwack River, and this guy was down there. It was like out of a movie. I was a teenager, and oh, not my first, a second steelhead, and he was tanning a buffalo hide. He had been given a buffalo hide and he was tanning this buffalo hide and he sat with me for like two hours. We had the most incredible conversation about his culture. He used to make, he would make drums, but I, that was me. I had to go and, and have this very uncomfortable moment of asking permission into their lives. Yeah. I mean, I think it should work both ways. I think that, you know, I think uh, First Nations should make an effort. I think we should make an effort. I hate that there's that division. I hate that I'm even talking like we're two different people uh, when we all want the same thing. But do you have any, I mean, you were my access. You emailed me. That granted me access to this discussion. You know, you're not going to email everybody. How can other people have access to this discussion? I think we all have our own responsibility, yeah, to put our own effort into it. Because again, it's the goal that we all want. And sometimes that looks like what you've done, but also knowing that I don't think, again, to no fault of anyone, people are aware how much research and literature education is out there on this. Ooh, do you have any suggestions? I've, I've, yeah, academia is full of 
very amazing research on the future of Western science, indigenous knowledge on, on what that looks like, the struggles, how to overcome it, um, what these relationships are going to look like for the next few decades. Have yeah. you had a book or a source or a website or a podcast or something that you can refer us to? I, can I link would this love up. to leave some notes. Can we leave notes in like the, the podcast notes? Yes. Leave of course. some sources. Yep. Um, I also have two gifts for you. Oh, thank you. Do you want um, to ma- name what these are so people yeah, can see? There's a book by, uh, Charlotte Cote called Spirits of Our Whaling Ancestors, which talks about revitalizing macaw and new Chalneth whaling traditions and the struggle of that in the legal context of today, today as well as environmentalism, mm-hmm. as well as industry and racism. And it's a beautiful book on what indigenous management and uh, hunting of whales looks like currently. The next book I'm going to give you is called Hunters and Bureaucrats, <laughs> Power, <laughs> Knowledge, and Aboriginal State Relations in the Southwest Yukon. Oh, wow. Thank by you. An All amazing right. author, uh, academic, Paul Nadasti. Okay. And it essentially talks about what we talked about today in the Yukon, current struggles around environmental assessment. What does data management of counting sheep uh, what does that look like? How does this process further assimilate Indigenous people? Where does it doesn't assimilate? All these conversations happen in these sorts of books. Thank you. Well, I will read these and I will also get this uh, this linked up on the podcast. And I'll send, you mentioned, we'll send some links of fish traps. There's some articles on the clam gardens. Um, yeah. Yep. I'll link all of this up. So just look when you go to meateater.com or themeateater.com, have a look and you will see it listed in the write-up. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.